This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 22nd Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And we have Tracy Kidder with us, an author who has won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, countless other awards for his work, not only with The New Yorker and The Atlantic, but for his books. I'll just run through a few of them here. The Road to Yuba City, uh, Soul of a New Machine, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize, um, Mountains Beyond Mountains, Strengthen What Remains, House, Old Friends, Among School Children, um, Hometown, and most recently, uh, A Truck Full of Money. Tracy Kidder, welcome to our Writer's Symposium. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. So what, what amazes me about your books, besides the fact that I think they're incredibly well-written, but it's, it's, the, it's, it's the fact that people that you wrote about let you stay in their homes, let you travel all over the world with them. Um, I, it's the access people gave you to write in such depth about them. And I'm, I, I want to start there. I, are you that trustworthy? What, <laughs> what, what, is it, what is it about you that... I mean, didn't you stay in people's homes while you were writing about them? Sometimes, yeah, on occasion. Well, Did you have their permission to do that? <laughs> yes. Okay. okay. Invariably. Uh, was it, you know, there's a famous uh, essay by, oh, actually, I guess it's a little book, uh, Janet Malcolm, called The uh, Journalist and the Murderer. Anyway, she, she would say it's all a con game. Um, and I suppose there is some of that. You know, uh, I've asked people to let me write about them who, have refused it, and, and I never blame them. I mean, I'm never. There's no hard feelings. I right, you understand. Get, I absolutely. I'd never let anyone do this to me. <laughs> My favorite story about this is I, not so very many years ago. I hope he won't be mad at me for saying this. I, I a mutual friend said, "You really got to write a book about Yo-Yo Ma," and I put that put it to him, and he he turned me down in the nicest way possible. That incredibly genial. A charming fellow. He took me out to dinner and he said, can't we just be friends? Wow. Wow. <laughs> he, he saw the risk, right? I think, yeah, he did. And I, I do, you know, as, I've, as the years have gone on and on and on, I've um, come to try to be almost forbidding towards subjects. I mean, on the one hand, I try to say, look, I can't promise you're going to like this. I can't let you control what I'm going to say about you. I can't... Um, Promise you that that other people will like what your this you know, this thing that I'm going to produce and this funhouse mirror that you're going to be looking into, um, and it is. But I, you know, I, I also do so promise to do my best to make it good. Yeah. And well, they I, trust I don't know, you. Some people go. Some people do. Um, and then I do try to be a good guest in people's lives, and I do try to not to be judgmental so much as to understand. I mean, the two aren't necess- are, are different, but they can be very closely aligned, I, I grant you. And uh, so far, at least, I haven't been sued. I, really? Not once? 
Uh, for that, I mean. Not for that. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. No. Well, let's talk about- For the, the various construction projects that I find. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got it. Um, let's talk about your first book, Road to Yuba City. I, yeah, I was going to say, why did you have to mention that book? Well, you, you, I know you don't like that book, and that's not why I'm bringing it up, but I, I do think it matters how a, how a writer begins. Mm-hmm. So this started as an Atlantic story, right? right. Well, I had, and you thought there's a book-length thing to do. Well, I thought it was Truman Capote. I was very young, and I, um, I was going to do my in cold blood. I thought that was what you wanted to write about, was a grisly murder case, and that's what that was about. It was a, it was Juvenilia. I mean, I, I, there's so many things wrong with that book. I wouldn't even want to get started. But I wrote another book before that, which I have written about subsequently. I wrote about the book that I wrote, which is a novel I wrote about after I came back from Vietnam as a soldier. And it was a book about experiences I didn't have in Vietnam. It was, it was. Uh, this that was the, a really bad book. Well, yeah, <laughs> and and this is the one you burned, right? I burned it, and then it reappeared, yes. Well, there was a... Whoa. That wasn't magic. I, I, had, I, I had sent copies to various people, and the, the, this copy came back from a friend who was cleaning out his files years later. And, I was, and I, as I wrote about this, I said, I, was, I realized I was glad to have it back. Uh, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> well, okay, but I'm not going to belabor the Road yeah. to Yuba City, the one you're, you, you, you don't like. But here's what impressed me about that book is... I mean, you rode freight trains with migrant workers. You, you worked uh, picking peaches in orchards. Thinning sugar beets, actually. Okay. Only okay. for half a day. <laughs> oh, just for half a day? All right, all right. I couldn't do it. Yeah, it's, it's hard really work. really hard work. But you were doing this to try to get some sense of the, the people that you were writing about. Yeah. That's impressive, though, to, to, to ride the, the trains and go to the trials and and uh, visit with people in jails. You did an extraordinary amount of reporting for that. Yeah, I, I must say, I, I did do quite a bit. Um, I have friends who would, would, for whom that would have been just scratching the surface. Hmm. I have one friend who's a rather famous writer named Jonathan Hari wrote that wonderful book, A Civil Action. Actually, I think it's fair, for, it's fair to say that I made him write that book. Well, I mean, he had the... I, I had to force him to write it. Hmm. He, 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 Jonathan is a great reporter in part because he's so fright, afraid of writing that he'd, he'd, he would, just keep he, gathering. He would keep reporting forever. Yeah. It's tempting sometimes. It just seems, I want to go back to my first point, it just seems like everybody trusts you. Um, that, that's what a, what a that's not true of everyone in my immediate family, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the people you've written about have, have put a tremendous amount of trust in you. I think that's true. Um, although some have been, it's been a kind of wary trust. Some people have been much harder than others to, to write about. Tom West, for instance, the, I don't even know if he is the protagonist or the central figure of the soul of a new machine. He was really difficult to, it was difficult to get him to talk. Um, yeah, was and then great. he finally did about some things. It, it, that's one of the, I have the great luxury of time, uh, uh, you know, as opposed to what uh, I've been so lucky this way. A newspaper reporter really has got to get that story mm-hmm. in, in a timely way. I can wait. And I, and I need, you know, it, you have to be a little bit patient sometimes with some people. Well, but it's not just about building people's trust. You've got to get up to speed on really complex things, 
the building of a, of a computer for Sullivan New Machine, or about aging for your, your, your book, uh, Among Friends. And you've, you've really got to know a lot of stuff to do what you do. Well, what I do, my typical technique is, mm-hmm. is to meet someone whom I find interesting and then get interested in what interests them. Um, and what that implies is that I have uh, good instructors. With, with, Paul, with Paul Farmer, for instance, Dr. Paul Farmer, I mean, I had to know a certain amount about infectious disease, but he would quiz me on, on the airplanes. And finally, I got to the point where I quizzed him. I went and bought this book called Principles and Practices of Infectious Disease. It's two volumes. It weighs about 150 pounds. And it's horrifying, I mean, to think of all the things that could go wrong with us. <clears throat> but I, I looked up the most obscure thing I could find, something called tropical sprue. Sounds, oh, yeah. Sounds awful, right? I asked him about it. I think it. I had that for dinner. He, yeah, no, you didn't. <laughs> you wouldn't have kept it down. <laughs> he, 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 uh, he knew, he had, it was encyclopedic on this subject, so I said, okay, case closed. He knew, he had he more knew to that say. Disease? He knew more to, he had more to say about tropical sprue than the, the Bible did, this particular. Yeah. Bible. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I do have to learn stuff, but it's, you know, for instance, you say I had to learn how a computer was built. Well, engineers have a, particularly uh, computer engineers have a wonderful term, or they used to. It's just called levels of abstraction. And I remained at a fairly high level of abstraction. <laughs> I, learned, I mean, I had wonderful tutors. They mm-hmm. were really eager to explain to me, try to explain to me. And I, um, I got just about as far as I felt I needed to get. And, no more. And, yeah, and that's actually the cool thing about the kind of work that you do is you, you know when, you don't have to be an expert, actually. You need to know enough that you can write about it. I think in any field, uh, there is a certain fundamental body of knowledge that is not quite as intimidating as many of the practitioners of that field would like you to believe. Oh, fine. But yeah. okay. that may not be true of high energy physics or mathematics in my case. Right. Since algebra is kind of tough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I went into journalism. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, let me give you a, a, a great line about you from the New York Times where a reviewer said, Kidder has become the high priest of narrative arts by diving deep into an improbable subject or character with little more than a hunch as to what he might eventually find. And I thought that captured your, your book so well. It you just kind of take us along on this hunch. So is that a conscious thing on your part? No, and really it isn't. I, uh, that's very kind of the, the reviewer to say that. I, I um, probably too kind. No, I, I, when I met uh, Paul Farmer, for instance, mm-hmm. I knew this was a guy I ought to write about. For other reasons, I didn't for about six, pursue him for about six years, but... Um, I mean, in some cases, it's just clear that you've, you've lucked into... I, 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 this, by the way, you've, you've opened up a subject for me here, which is, if you don't mind my digressing. I, I, the hardest thing about my job, for me, has typically been... One of the hardest things is figuring out what to do next. And, and obviously, if, if that's the hardest thing about your job, then you've got a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. But it has been a real problem. And I can never, I don't have an algorithm for solving it. I, you know, I will read the newspapers, you know, desperately 
talk, go out and talk to people. Um, but it's almost always been, once in a while it's been a chance suggestion from someone like my editor or my editor's wife. Um, but often it's just been running into somebody when I'm going someplace else. So I ran into Farmer in Haiti when I was, I'd gone there for the New Yorker magazine to write a story about soldiers, American soldiers. And, and I met Deo Gracias of Strength and What Remains because I went to see Paul Farmer who had just had a big knee operation and, and on. And it goes mm-hmm. on like that. So. so part of it is, is, I don't know, would you call that luck or is, yeah, that, or is that just paying attention on your part? The problem is, though, that if, you have to, if you're trying to earn a living as a writer and you have to wait for this kind of good fortune to come, it's, it can be a little trying. But I, I managed, in my household, I always have in the past, to, to share my discomfort. <laughs> yeah, you want to spread it out a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure everyone's grateful for that. Yeah. But, but, the, <laughs> but this is, this is uh, so risky, though, because... What if, you, what if you decide, this is a topic I really want to dig into. I'm going to learn a lot about it. I'm going to commit time, energy, all that. And you get a ways in and you realize, actually, this isn't very interesting. That's happened to me. And it's never that it's not very interesting. It's just not interesting to me. There's some marriage of, of ingredients for a person who likes to... I think of myself as a storyteller. I like to... where It just doesn't blossom for me. And, and then I have learned that you've got to cut your losses. Um, it can be a little painful, both for you and, and you know, and, and I suppose it could be insulting to the person, but it's never really because the person's inadequate. It just didn't work. I've had that happen. I've, had got, I've gotten onto some false starts in the past. Um, most interesting one was um, when my, my I have this, I've had the same editor for over 40 years. He's, he doesn't work for a publisher anymore, but he works for me sometimes. He's wonderful and funny and smarter than I am. And uh, we, have a, we have a nice, a very, a very uh, nice relationship. And I've often taken his advice, often to my uh, great profit. But one, one time he told me he wanted me, he thought I should write a book about a tycoon, a business tycoon, a big businessman. And I, so I set out to do that. I must have written to about 30 or 40 big CEOs. This is some years ago. And I got one, one, resp- one r- r- interview out of all of hmm. that on the 68th floor of some Manhattan skyscraper. A nice man. But, you know, he, he, he spent a lot of the time when I was there figuring out what he was going to have for lunch. And then he said to me that he really, on due consideration, didn't think he could afford to let me write, have me write about him because he didn't really want people to know how little he actually accomplished. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I thought, geez, you, you would be fun to write about. Yeah, he compared his job to that, what's it called, telephone, that job where you have a circular table, a uh, job, that game, you know, you dinner party game, and you whisper something to the person mm-hmm. on your left, like, we need a new marketing plan. And by the time it comes back to you, it's, your mother's a kangaroo, you know? <laughs> That was uh, that was the analogy he used. Well, no, he did. He did. He didn't say the kangaroo thing. Right, right, right. But <laughs> right, but wow, wow. So no go on that. No guy. go on that. And then I, I, so I put that one aside. Well, here's here's what I think is one of the fascinating things about your books is on the one hand, let's take Soul of a New Machine for example. It's about computers and it's about developing computers and um, and what it takes, the uh-huh. teamwork that goes into it, the fear 
that goes into wanting to make a, uh, a, a product that is going to work and it's going to outsell the competitors. But, there's, but it's also about something else. And this is what I love about your writing is that there's always something else that your stories are about. So, for instance, at least it struck me as that's a, that book is about a, a obsession, about, about a person's or about a group's obsession to either achieve or finish this or win or whatever. So on the one hand, it's about computers, and I learned a lot about how to build a computer, but I also learned a lot about human motivation. Are you aware of that when you're, when you're doing that? Not usually. I, I mean, that is, I don't usually have a, a, um, an abstract notion about, about things, although sometimes it's helpful. But usually I'm just trying to tell the story mm-hmm. that, I've, that I've witnessed. There, I do think that by the end of some books, the lot I have figured that out. My book House, for instance, is about the building of a single-family house. And I do remember as I was working on it, I told some new acquaintance that I was doing this at a cocktail party. And he said, you mean you're going to write a whole book about the building of a house? But for me, it was really alive. It there were these carpenters, and there were these incipient homeowners, and there was this architect, and they each had separate. Each it was a menage a trois without sexual connotations, and um, it, we got really quite fascinating. I thought, and I thought it was a book. It was a book about something ancient and something tremendously important in American culture, but also it was a book about social class, and I. I but I never would have wanted to say that on the page, not right. openly. You know, that great, the great uh, uh, Latin American writer, Jorge Luis Borges, I think, I think I've got this right. He, I remember reading something that he wrote once about writing where he said, if you're writing a story about time, the one word forbidden to you in that story is the word time. Um, but, but I have, on the other hand, what my editor will sometimes tell me what something's about. So I... I was writing about this one character, this amazing woman, this nun who saved the, this this guy Deo Gracias. This is in strength and what remains. In strength and what remains. And I was having a hard time. I, I was so enchanted with her that I was I had written up this bit about her. It was much too long. It was out of proportion to everything else, and it was rather dull, even though I was enchanted with her. And he said, my editor said, "Look, uh, focus." He said, this should be about 15 pages long instead of 40, and, which is useful. But even more useful was, he said, focus on the quality of her mercy. And so suddenly I had a vessel to contain it. Hmm. But, and, so, and that can be useful, but I wouldn't, I'm wary of abstraction. Okay. Because it doesn't cover all the bases, you know? No, but it, it, it does seem like a lot of your books deal with people who have these obsessive, kinds of drives. Paul Farmer, yeah. there's an obsession there. Um, I, I think there's an obsession in Truck Full of Money. Uh, yeah, there is, well, but many obsessions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's what I wondered. Is, are you just kind of drawn to people who are just so locked in on accomplishing something? Well, and don't forget, too, that it's, it's a little bit like, you know, if I, write a, I wrote a book about a school teacher, but I didn't write about all the other, much about all the other things in her life. I wrote about her school teaching. Mm-hmm. So it, I suppose it can put a... But she was obsessive about trying to get these, these students either into the next level or, or to be treated fairly or to be treated with respect. I don't know. She, I, she I, obsession me. would seem too strong a word in that case. She was 
diligent and trying, and, hmm. uh, and she wasn't going to give up. The other thing about that book, this is a book called Among School Children. Um, the other thing about that book that struck me as really interesting was there was this moment in that book where uh, her students participate in a science fair. And that science fair struck me, at least when I came to it, this is, as we say in, in journalism, this was the nut graph for me because this was the spot where all of the inequities of class and privilege were laid bare. Mm-hmm. And her students, you could, she could tell and the students could tell that the game was rigged. That's true. And I say as much, pretty much overtly there. But there was the event. And, and, and so... It's just a question of whether, which way you come at something. Uh, if you wanted to write about the Holocaust or the Great Depression, um, you know, a big, big subject, you might come at it from a theoretical uh, angle, and you, uh, that, from that direction. At least I think of it as a direction. And you might write about individual people, but generally in order to, uh, in order to, to, to use them as examples of something that you think of is more important, which is the fate of a whole population of people. But I also, and I think that's incredibly useful, it's absolutely essential to understanding something. But fortunately, we don't have to just take one, you know, as readers, look at just one approach. The other way to, of coming at it is the way that appeals to me personally, not necessarily, not exclusively as a reader, but as a writer, which is to start with the, the story itself. You know the particulars of time, place, person, and uh, and 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 then let it broaden, if it will. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no. Basically, you're saying that the the story. You're more interested in a narrative way of looking at something than just the idea itself. Yeah, right? and if you know, if I wanted to write a, if if that book house is really a book about social class, at least in part. I mean, that's why we have that term, to describe situations precisely like this. You mm-hmm. know? So why use the term? Yeah. Well, okay, so let's talk about the one you wrote about uh, the, the people in the retirement center, or assisted living. Nursing home. Yeah, nursing home, old friends. Yeah. Right? I, I learned so much about the aging process and the loneliness and, again, just the, the flaws in how we treat old people by your following basically these two people, and mostly one guy, but two people, and then you've got all these other characters in here too. Um, you, you get in, this, again, this is why I think your writing is so powerful. You get into uh, the history of things, um, the philosophy of things, but basically it's by telling, following these guys around, just telling their story. Yeah, I might in that case actually have, have to- told a little more about, you know, um policy and so on, but I, it was long enough without it. <laughs> but on that one, did you actually had to spend a lot of time? I did spend a lot of time in the nursing home, yeah. I've, you know, um, the book didn't do tremendously well. <laughs> some people liked it, some didn't, but it, uh, I'm not sure I'd, I'd, I'd do that one again, although I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. I think it's a pretty good book. I thought it was a great book. I, uh, I remember... This is kind of an awful story, but I remember coming home from... At one point, I decided to do the corny, stupid thing, but just to... I, I decided I ought to spend a night in the nursing home mm-hmm. at, as if I were myself a resident, just to see if I might learn something. 
Hold it. Did you tell the people in the nursing home you're going to do this? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, okay. they knew that. Yeah. And, and the you know the nurses had great support with me mm-hmm. standing out at the doorway saying, "Should we give him an enema?" That's a, <laughs> that's a source of great humor for yeah, among nurses yeah. is the enema. Yeah, that, and, that, they love that stuff. <laughs> so, I, but I came home the the next morning to get some sleep, and um, there was my daughter, my beautiful. I don't know, she was ten or twelve or something. Uh, sitting at the kitchen table having breakfast alone and I sat down and I said melodramatically to her I said Alice don't ever put me in a nursing home get me a gun instead and and she looked at me and she smiled and I can still hear her voice sort of in sing song saying you better be nice to me then <laughs> funny how you still remember that isn't <laughs> yeah, it, it is. <laughs> You know, especially more and more every year. She, but the thing is, the thing about that book is, I really sort of I saw that book. It was mostly about these two old guys, and 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 this nursing home was a good nursing home. That wasn't the issue, and there are a lot of bad ones, of course. But these were these two old men who were in this vestibule to eternity, really, who were doing something much more interesting and more difficult than playing bingo, which was making friends. It was really quite moving to me. Uh, they were making friends they knew they were going to lose. Yeah, and they did, of course. Um, anyway, it was... You know, that was... Uh, I, I, I just I wonder if I should have gone there at that point in my life. You know, It's like a, a, the book a friend of mine once wrote about suicide, saying I, I can... I can't imagine taking my own life. I shall lose it soon enough. Hmm. Yeah, it would be a very sobering project to do what you did uh, with, with that nursing home. Yeah, I didn't anticipate that. Yeah. It, that's another thing. You, know, you can't always anticipate the problems that might arise. With Deo Gracias, in, in, uh, he, neither he nor I, I mean, it's my fault, I suppose, but his as well, perhaps a little bit. I, it, we did, I didn't realize how traumatic this was going to be for him. For him to... For letting me do the research, taking me back, and then going over uh, stories, all To go back stories. to Burundi. And, and, but also to go back in his mind to tell the stories. And hmm. Particularly since he came from a culture that values silence. Um, a culture that has not one but two words for reminding people of something unpleasant. Both are verbs, and, and they're bad things to do to someone. Wow. So it was... Uh, and I felt terrible. I mean, parts of that. And I did at one point offer to stop. But by then, he said, no, I'm going to well go on. Well, well, it was a powerful book. But, uh, but you could tell it pained him in, yeah. in the way you wrote it. It pained him to go back through the, the genocide in Rwanda and the Civil War in, in Burundi Rwanda, yeah. and uh, his being homeless in Central Park. Yeah, it was a... Um, it was, I don't know. You know, we think in, in the West that it's best to face up to these things and digest them in some open way. And I don't know. You know, who knows what's best? I do, I do know that um, these things do not, do not easily evaporate, you know. Mm-hmm. What, what I admire about a person like Dale is that, you know, you have to carry these burdens. But he carries them in a way that has allowed him to build a a spectacular medical system in, in, a, in one of the poorest countries in the world that really is a, a sort of beacon of hope in a place that doesn't have an awful lot. 
called, I think called Village Health Works. If you're interested, you can look it up, villagehealthworks.org. Okay. You know, there's an interesting uh, parallel with soul of a new machine and a truck full of money. Uh, so let me ask you about this. Uh, where they begin in really interesting ways. They, you, you introduce the character in Soul of a New Machine. This guy is trying to guide a sailboat through a terrible storm. Mm-hmm. So that's how we get to meet this guy. Um, and then he becomes the leader of this, this team that builds mm-hmm. this, this mm-hmm. new computer. In A Truck Full of Money, your most recent book, we are introduced to Paul English, the main character, when he's in high school or somewhere in school. Seventh grade. Seventh grade, trying to figure out how to hack into the school's computer system. To, so, to, so, yes. Right? That's absolutely right. It was at Boston Latin School, the, best, the oldest high, public high school in, in America. But it was, it was this fascinating thing where you, you introduce these really smart people in a predicament, and then... And that's how we get to know these people. And then we, and then we kind of follow them through um, as they solve. I hadn't thought of it that way. But, but well, in, in that case, it wasn't exactly a predicament. He, he just wanted to get control of attendance. And he did. Well, yeah. Yeah. He had this sort of Ferris Bueller predicament, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, he, he, he used it to play hooky for the rest of his time at Boston yeah, Latin. It didn't do well by him <laughs> academically. But, but, but this, this is what's so great about telling a story like that. It reveals something about the character of these guys. You, know, you really revealed something about Paul English by saying this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to play hooky, but he wanted to do it in a really smart, intelligent way. Right? And, and the Tom West character trying to navigate through a, a storm, a very brave kind of thing, but it revealed something about them yeah. right, out, right off the bat. That, I just thought it was a great way to introduce those characters. Thanks. I'm glad that worked. So, so then the rest of it, it one of the parallels I, I thought was you've got truck, uh, truck Full of Money, which is about software, and Soul of a New mach- Machine, which is about hardware. Right. And, but I also thought that's kind of where, how we've gone as a, as a society as well. Yeah, right? it's true. Well, as a tech, that I, I think most technologists would say that um, hardware used to be king, you know, it used to be the important thing in, in, in the making of computers and software. It's just something that went with it. In fact, for a long time, it was given away. Mm-hmm. Um, IBM, I mean, that's how Microsoft got started. Uh, but now, Software is everything. That's how hardware is made, is via software. Uh, and uh, as I understand it, anyway. But yes, we're, we're a software-driven world. And for all the... And there are pros and cons of that, of course. Mm-hmm. Although, you know what? When I started that book, I, I thought... I, I was writing about a guy who had been a really... Had been a, a super coder, a very fine uh, programmer. And this seems to be an inborn trait in some percentage of the population. That's what one of the greatest computer scientists uh, in history believes. 2% of the population, he says, are born to program computers. have always been born to program computers. Wow. So it was a talent awaiting its instrument. I mean, he says, this is Donald Knuth. Mm-hmm. He says that uh, he figures that the people who built the pyramids, 2% of them would have been great computer scientists if there had been computers back then. Wow. Um, anyway. This guy had been that, but now he had, he had become an entrepreneur. And, and, and he was, what was interesting, most, one of the interesting things about him was that he was, could straddle both those worlds. 
um, he could deal with the suits as, uh, on behalf of his engineers and keep mm-hmm. them from having to go to dreadful, boring meetings with PowerPoint presentations and stuff. Uh, but he, uh, at, at the same time, he could talk to the, to the so-called suits. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let, let's go back to a couple of the, the other characters you've written about. And I'm thinking about the, the, the Dale uh, character in, yeah, in Strength and What Remains. You depend a lot on his memory. Yeah. And, but but as, a, as a nonfiction writer, you know memory is a tricky thing. Yeah, it's completely unreliable. Yeah, it, it is unreliable. So how do you know what you're writing? I didn't in that case. I mean, I was able to verify uh, some things just with documents mm-hmm. that, I had, that he gave me, um, official documents, when he came to the States, under what auspices, um, you know, and the, all the stuff in New York City. But the stories from Burundi, the, uh, um, the only, I mean, I couldn't find people who probably had been killed anyway in those mm-hmm. wars, but, and whose names he never knew. Uh, and I had to rely on his memories, and I had to acknowledge, I did manage in the text to acknowledge the fact that, obviously, some of this can't be true. But I, there was a great writer named A.J. Liebling, who, at the end of one of his more fantastical pieces of writing about a character, a real character, said, the story was in its entrails true, which is what matters, he said. But, and I, you know, going back with him to Burundi and watching, it, to me it was like the, mem- the memories that he had related to me and was still relating to me were like, was kind of awful. They were almost like uh, viruses or bacilli, some kind of awful organisms that were, had been waiting in the landscape for him to return, to reactivate. And then, you know, they were upon him. And in one case where he was really, he went somewhere else. And this is when he was just staring off into yeah, the... anger and fear. It was right. really something. And also his reaction at, the, at these various memorial sites. And at, I, I thought, well, look, basically this story has to be true. And he was able to, sh- to stand at a, on a hilltop and point to me, point where he'd made his parts of his escape. So I, you know... Uh, it's a difficult thing for a journalist, to, but, but I mean, the, I wasn't. I think we were talking about this earlier. There is a school of, I guess it's nonfiction writing. I mean, I'm, we can talk about that term too, but um, that thinks you can invent all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you don't like the term creative nonfiction. Well, I, 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 John McPhee, my, one of my heroes doesn't like nonfiction, period, because it only tells you what it isn't. Yeah, it starts with a Lots negative. of things are nonfiction, mm-hmm. or maybe almost nothing is nonfiction, but he likes the term, uh, uh, the literature of fact. That sounds a little highfalutin, but it covers it, I think. It, what it means is that you don't make it up by his lights. Or as he's also said, though, no one makes rules for everyone, but, uh, and as I feel that way, too. But... Uh, you know, it's fa- it should be factual. You, sh- you, you of course, you're going to make mistakes, but you don't make them on purpose. Um, you don't create composites. You don't. You don't, compa- you don't pretend something happened when it didn't happen. Doesn't. But that doesn't mean you have to tell it, tell things in the order in which they happened. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't. There's plenty of art artfulness involved. But the one thing that's denied you by my lights is is invention of of. Um, people and incidents and dialogue and so on. Memoirs, of, uh, I, I've written one, I'll never write another, but it, it, it's a tr- that's a much trickier area 
Well, okay, so let, let's actually talk about that memoir. This is, uh, this is about your time in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, My Detachment, right. this great double meaning um, uh, of, a, of a title. But you had written a novel about your time in Vietnam. Yes. You were this very unlikely uh, officer uh, who went to Vietnam, uh, came back, wrote a novel about it. You hated it, burned as many copies as you could, 15 years... Well, first of all, it got rejected by a bunch of publishers. I think it was 26. What what was so awful about it? Well, it it was... um, Here, you look more parched than I do. No, I've got some more. I've got some more. All right, all right. It was was overblown. Uh, The novel was? Yeah, it was was full of silliness. But Um, but it was a... But but isn't that that fairly normal, though, for a first novel? Yeah, I think so. Juvenilia. You know, I, I, as I told the students today, I tried, wanted them to feel better, the, the boys, that is, the young men, mm-hmm. that I had a long adolescence, longer than most. And, and it certainly was <laughs> still, still fully adolescent um, period there when I wrote that novel. It was, yeah, it was all about experiences I didn't have in Vietnam. It, it, you know, the, the, the dramatic combat experiences. But I did find use for it in that book, My Detachment, yeah. which I... I, I, I commanded, in a sense, an eight-man uh, unit that was called a detachment. It was invo- involved in uh, communications intelligence in Vietnam. But I meant the other, all the possible meanings, too, for, with that title. Um, and it's, you know, it's a kind of story we don't often hear about from war. That of, I mean, the most common experience in war is probably the non-combatants experience. Um, but that's the one you don't usually read about because it's inherently not particularly dramatic. But you wove in pieces from your novel <laughs> into that. Yeah, my novel, which was melodramatic. Yeah, I, I just yeah, I, it was just an interesting way to still get some of that novel right. uh, uh, in there. Right. But but here's um, even even your own memory. I wonder, could you could you trust your own memory on no, that? No. Well, I, I had. I had that novel because, and I'd written that fresh from Vietnam, and I and I know some of that stuff was taken from Vietnam and then distorted. But I could sort of tell. I had um, I had some letters I'd written, some things I'd I'd, I'd written down, some stories, but I hadn't had the wit to write a to keep a journal. I considered for a time going and finding my men, the men who served with me, and I did find one, but inadvertently he came to see me. But I realized that their memories would be just as faulty as mine. So I relied on certain documents for things that had happened there. I was able to verify the dates of things mm-hmm. and so on. But I just the, the, the deal I made with myself was I would be true to my memories. And those were pretty much embarrassing. <laughs> you know. Is that why it took 15 years? It took 15 years because I kept, I kept doing the, the obvious silly thing that one does uh, with embarrassing memories. If you don't just bury them under a pillow, you, uh, one can uh, excoriate the... I, I, I was writing in a tone that suggested that this young lieutenant and I were, were very distantly related, if we were related at all, you know, um, <laughs> which wasn't true. <laughs> and my editor ultimately had the solution. We said, just tell it mm-hmm. flat. Don't, uh, you know, just try to be there. Well, uh, okay, so 
I, you've got so many, um, there are so many reasons why you could have been discouraged about becoming a writer. You know, for instance, this novel, it just didn't work out. You're not crazy about your, your first nonfiction book, Road to Yuba City. But you also had a, uh, you had an editor who said, oh, I've got to find this. Well, I'll t- I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the head editor of The Atlantic. I am. Back then, yeah. Well, he t- said to Richard, the first article I tried to do for that magazine was about this awful murder case in California, and, it, and I had the worst time trying to write an article about it. It was just couldn't make sense of it. The book wasn't much better, but the, the, the article finally sort of came around and was published. But at a certain point, this guy, uh, Bob Manning, had said to, to my editor, Todd, uh, let's face it, this fellow can't write. And, uh, he actually said that about you. Well, I, now, Todd didn't, Dick Todd didn't tell me this until, oh, I don't know, 35 years later. Oh, okay. I, I, think, I think by then he figured I could take it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, but but there was another one though where it was actually kind of a compliment because of your of your writing style that you wanted to just write blast out oh. a first draft where where the guy says he's not afraid to write badly. That was that was my my editor of forty years, and he didn't I didn't hear him say it, but it was reported to me that he was talking to a class of students at at the University of Massachusetts, and he had said that the kidder's great gift is that he's not afraid of writing badly, and. Okay. But what he meant, <laughs> I think, was that uh, uh, yeah, I am afraid of writing badly, but only in public, not in front of him. And I, I mean, I rewrite a lot, and I'm not afraid of writing a, a, a pretty bad rough draft or even a second draft, just to get, begin to get this material out of my head and my notebooks onto a page somewhere where I can begin to try to make something of it. All right. Okay, because I thought if you would have been told that early on, that would have been a very discouraging... It would, but, but, he, but not in the, the spirit in which he right. meant it, I assume. He meant it. The other one would have been pretty... He was right to withhold that from me. Wow. At that age, yes. One of the things that I've... I, I tried to read your books kind of in order that you wrote them. So one of the things that I noticed is that your role in the books seemed to diminish over, uh, over the course of them. Except? I mean, except My Detachment. And Mountains Beyond Mountains. Right, but, but that was... Yeah, you had to be in there, though. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, but but I, I think I know why you had to be in there. You tell me why you... Why did you have to insert yourself as a character in that? Because he's a difficult... He's a person who challenges our sensibilities, or not everyone's, perhaps, um, but he, he's the kind of person who can make you feel crummy. <laughs> you know, the rest because, of us because, feel crummy. Because he's so good? Well, because he's so accomplished, because he's so self-sacrificing, so passionate about his cause. Um, and, you know, he can make us feel um, in, insufficient somehow. What I wanted to do was to, to get in between the reader and him, and established myself as an interpreter, as someone who could feel annoyed for the reader and then, or uncomfortable, and then explain the sources of my discomfort, what I thought about it. And not because I wanted to be self-revelatory, I just want, uh, I, I felt it was necessary as a way to present him so that you could find him 
ultimate, you know, get rid of this irritating self-reflection and find him as palatable, finally, as I found him to be. And to see what his, see him, you know, a lot of that stuff just doesn't matter when you look at the work itself. But the fact is that he was charming and a lot mm-hmm. of fun to travel with and so on. So I don't know. I, that's the way it seemed to me. It is true that when I first wrote, uh, uh, well, look, there are all kinds of, uh, I don't think that, that I'm much of a character in The Soul of a New Machine, although there is a first person there, but sort of like the John McPhee first person minor who's just there to have people, to talk to people, mm-hmm. to have people talk to him. Um, after that, I, I began, I like the neatness the, of, uh, in a book like House, which is about the building of a single family house, it's a little world. And I, did, I, I wanted to keep you inside that little world. I didn't, I felt like intruding with the first person, uh, the first person would have felt like an intrusion there. It, I, I just think it's a choice. It's not a choice that you, that it would, it would work for everybody. Other mm-hmm. people presented with the same material would do it completely differently, but it seemed like the right, those all seemed like the right choices to me. But I hope it wasn't doing it a priori, saying, well, I've got to write this book in the third person because I should write in the third person. No, I just thought it showed something about your, your manner in storytelling. You were, you, were more, oh. you were more present in Road to Yuba City and less present in Truck Full of Money. I wasn't present at all. Well, I was some. Tiny bit. Yeah. Well, and you're present in just the sound of the words, you know, the sentences. Yeah. But sure. And what you choose to, to tell and not to tell. So how have you grown, do you think, as a writer from Yuba City to Truck Full of Money? What's, what's changed in you? Well, I hope the road to Yuba City is not the, where I would start. <laughs> where, where do you want to start? Well, I'll say the soul in the machine. Okay. Because the road to Yuba City, I, I pretend I didn't write. Sorry to, I, I, sorry I told, to have brought it up. I, I, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. I told Google that they couldn't reproduce it. it I, I actually kept that book out of, I, I took that book out of print. And I paid to keep it out of print years ago. Well, after, you were just I, embarrassed by it? Or well, it was, published and it, 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 it was published to a resounding silence. And, uh, <laughs> and it didn't sell very many copies at all. Hardly at all. And I, that my advance, I think, was $3,000 for that book. And by God, it didn't pay out its advance. And when, wow. when the Soul of a New Machine won the Pulitzer and, and all these nice things were happening, the, 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 I think it was Doubleday, who owned the rights still to the road to the city, decided to republish it. And I didn't want him to do that. So I had to pay, I had to pay them back the unearned portion of the advance to get the rights back. To get that back. Yeah. So that they wouldn't republish it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, it wasn't exp- a lot of money. Well, it, it, but it, it does explain, it was hard to get a hold of. It, and I, I wondered why, and now I, uh, now I know. <laughs> it's not a very good book. Well, <laughs> there's, there's, a, uh, there's a line in uh, Strength and What Remains that I thought was kind of an ominous line, even for today's world where Deo says regarding genocide, in order to go on with our lives, we are always capable of making the ominous into merely strange. Where did I say that? He says that. This is, this is, you're quoting Dale. Talking about, he's, he's, he's back in Burundi. It's page 111. It, it's, it's, um, I don't remember it. He's, he's back in there. And, um, but I, I got to that line, I, I, I bracketed it because I thought, 
Every, every culture that has done something awful has, has adopted a statement like that at some point where something that was so, so horrible, you were able to, to shift it enough just to make it a little strange. You know, what I do, I take your word for it. I, Are you challenging I, me? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, but I, but, I, but I, the one I do remember, the other one was that line of, you know, never again, um, which was in French on this decrepit-looking sort of Greek temple in the, on a road where a terrible thing had happened. Uh, and he said, I have learned never to say never again. Hmm. I thought that was pretty chilling. And so it has turned out to be. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm also wondering about um, your presence. Let's go back to, like, among school children. Do you think your presence in the classroom changed anything about that, about that story? You know, I used to get asked a lot this, this question a lot. You know, how does your presence affect the events that you're reporting on? And I, I, I had the smart-ass answer, which was, I don't know because I wasn't there when I wasn't there. Right. But the tr- the, it's sort of true. Mm-hmm. It also... Um, you know, and then people would... I'm always suspicious when uh, a scientific principle gets applied. You know, I'm told that back when uh, the theory of relativity was first... Uh, um, every, everything was relative. And, and, and then what you hear is the Heisenberg principle. Mm-hmm. You know, that you can't observe something without disturbing it. I'm sure that's true. But how, how am I to know in what way I disturb them? I do think that in that book, for sure, I was just... To those kids, these are fifth grade kids, I was just a big fifth grader. And I, I had made a deal with the teacher that I would never discipline them unless they were doing something truly dangerous and she was, she was out of the room. And uh, I, anyway, I kept to it. You know, I mean, and they would come up to me and say, what are you writing there? And I'd say, he says, is that your book? And I'd say, no, I'm writing notes. I'm writing down what you're saying right now. And uh, they'd sort of shake their heads and walk away. But I don't think they, you know, fifth graders are something else. <laughs> they, they were, there was only one time when I had, when I, for some reason she was called out of the classroom. I think her own child was sick. And, you know, teachers, at least in that school, uh, they just, I mean, it's hard for them even to find time to go to the bathroom. You know, I mean, really a tough job and not made easier in ways that it could be, you know. Mm-hmm. Simply made easier. Anyway, she rushed out of the classroom. She she was reading aloud to them at that point. She said, handed it to me and said, "Please read to them." So I. You became the substitute. She was a very effective classroom manager, and these were pretty tough kids from tough backgrounds. And yeah, so then she left, and I started reading. But things changed <laughs> when she left the room. Pretty soon, I had pandemonium. Really? So yeah, they, who's this dude reading to us now? We're gonna. Yeah, so I don't think I changed anything much. I mean, I would have if I had been the teacher, you know. Anyway. Well, brief experience in, yeah, in no, public but I, education. But I, you know, I, it is a, it's a valid question. It's a question, I guess, anthropologists ask. But in the end, since there's nothing I can do about it, I don't really, I don't let it worry me much. I try not to be too intrusive anyway, yeah. you know. And one of the things that really does cure the problem is, to, is just being with someone for a lot of time. And, you know, just to, give you, to go on just a little bit more, I wrote a book uh, called uh, Hometown. It's largely about Northampton, Massachusetts, and largely about a cop. I wrote it through the eyes of a, of a local cop whom I happened to find quite beguiling, funny. 
but, you know, I spent a lot of time in his squad car with him. Maybe much more than I needed to. I was just having fun because he was a very funny guy. And we would trade stories late at night when nothing much was happening. And it seemed perfectly symmetrical. Tell him a story of mine. Tell me a story of his. Of course, it wasn't a bit symmetrical. He wasn't writing down what I told him. Were you actually writing it down while? Sure. Yeah, okay. But people get used to that. Mm-hmm. So for the people who uh, want to become writers, for the people who are getting started, what, what kind of advice would you have for them? Um, <laughs> I don't know right now. I mean, it's changed so much. And the world of publishing has changed enormously, and I think it's due for some even bigger changes. Although, who knows? I mean, it's impossible to predict the future. And there has been a sort of resurgence of actual printed books. Yeah. And, and even some independent bookstores, which astonished me. It pleased me, too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I love all those old things that <laughs> are passing away, but uh, I, I wouldn't know where to send them. It used to be, you know, you could go off and get a job with a newspaper and, you know, earn your stripes that way and end up writing books. And I don't know that that avenue is so open anymore. It's hard to mm-hmm. get a job with a newspaper. Mm-hmm. I suppose you could work online. I don't know how you'd make a living. I, I you know, if, uh, jokingly, I guess I'd say marry rich. But <laughs> my father used to, had a wonderful saying about that. He'd say, the hours are too long at that business. Hmm. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think if it's something you really want to do, then you'll find a way to do it. But the, the one thing I would say, if you really want to do it, is you have to write in order to learn how to write, and you have to read in order to learn how others have done it, and so you don't end up having to reinvent everything for yourself. I read a lot, and, 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 and read widely, not just in... I mean, if you're trying to write nonfiction, you ought to be reading a lot of fiction, it seems to me, and even poetry. It doesn't really matter, as long as you're reading so basically, advice to writers would be read more and write more. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I, look, when I was an undergraduate and I decided I wanted to be a writer, I was calling myself a writer long before I was one, I think. But that's all right. We become what we pretend to be sometimes. It's better than deciding you're an alcoholic and then going out and figuring out <laughs> yeah. how to do that. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Success. <laughs> It may seem pretentious to some of your peers, but what the heck? All um, right. I don't know. It's, it, it's a little like uh, you know, trying to become an actor or um, photographer or something like that. Uh, but, but no one asks you to do it. So I, you know, I've tried to remind myself that over the years when there were the, things were a little lean in our, our household, that no one had asked me to do it. I had no right to complain. Hmm. There were plenty of other things I could have done and um, probably more useful. But I just happened to have the great good fortune to be able to do this for quite a few years and make a living at it. And I've, it's been just delightful for me. Just delightful. It's been delightful for us as readers, too. Tracy Kidder, thank you so much for being with oh, us. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.